Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Also, we're going to be looking at Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. As we continue our series, Life on the Vine, study of the fruit of the Spirit. Let's be mindful that God so loves us. He not only gave us His Son, He gave us His Word. Uh, This Word, it will never lead us astray. Uh, We can trust it. Uh, It is our authority. We place ourselves and our lives under it. And what a great challenge and comfort it is for us. Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit, it's love. It's joy. It's peace. It's patience. It's kindness. It's goodness. It's faithfulness. Gentleness, self control. Against such things there is no law. Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 11, verses 27 through 30. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This morning, as we continue this series, Life on the Vine, uh, examining what does a, a fruitful life in Christ look like, we get to a fruit that really, in many ways, uh, our world doesn't value. Uh, I believe the church often kind of looks past, uh, and that is gentleness, that God's calling us uh, to live a life that reflects who Jesus is and to be gentle. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever prayed for gentleness? Is that something you seek, but it's something that God's word tells us that should be evident in our lives because we, by God's grace, are walking with Jesus. Well, let's take this. Let's take this passage, which we're boring down on, and this one particular fruit, which we're boring down in. And let's, let's again, let's, let's place it in the bigger story, the bigger story that God is doing in the universe and kind of be reminded of this grand story. It begins with this, that God created this world. Did you, you hear what Vicki's saying? She says, it's not about me. It's, it's all about you. And that scripture tells us that, that God created all this out of nothing. Can you believe that? that God spoke and this world came into existence. But why did he create it? Why did God create this world? Well, again, according to God's word, that God created it for himself. He, he created it for his glory, that, that God's purpose in creating everything, including you and me, is so that we would be filled and we'd reflect his glory. 
As a matter of fact, scripture is very interesting to say how God does this. He created everything and he made man and woman in his image. And for some reason, it pleased God that we should be the ones. We should be the ones who take his glory and his love and his presence and fill this earth. He started at a place called paradise, the Garden of Eden. And man, was it an amazing place. It was a place where God and man could live together in harmony. I'm not sure exactly what it means, but it says that God and man could walk together in the cool of the evening. That we were there as his representatives and we were there to to cultivate that relationship and to cultivate that beauty. And we had one job. You know what our job was? It was to be fruitful and multiply. Isn't that a great God? I mean, he, he places us in a relationship with him. He places us in paradise. And he says, oh, by the way, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. Why? Because God's original plan, it was and it still is and it will be, is to fill this whole earth with his glory. And he chooses us to do it in a way that says, as you live in obedience to me and you love me, and as you take my image, as you fill this earth with my glory, you'll make it a place, the whole world will be paradise. The whole world will be a place where man and God can dwell together. Hey, how do we do? I'm saying, are you kidding me? Wow, we didn't even last very long. Matter of fact, we couldn't even get out of the garden. Uh, we, we sinned and we rebelled against God. So we, we got a better plan. We want to do it our own way. And uh, we went about trying to, uh, to find life apart from God. But here's the beautiful thing about God. You must know that God is unchanging. God's plan, you ready for this? Doesn't change and it won't fail. Isn't that good news? So in the fullness of time, in perfect time, God sent forth his son, his son who would come and be the obedient one that we failed to do. That his son would come and he'd be the sacrifice so that we can have life and life abundantly. His, his son would come in such a way that he would restart the plan. He would get that going again. So again, we could still be filling the earth with his glory. That's his plan. Plan from day one, plan now, and it will come to fruition. And what he says is this. He says, now I want you to be connected to my son. How are we connected to Jesus? Well, we're connected to him by God's grace through faith, by embracing Jesus as our Lord and Savior. It says that we can become one with him, that we, we, we can have this unbelievable union with Jesus, that, that so much is a union, so much oneness of family that, that when God's holy eyes see you and me, he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus' blood that was shed for us and that, that was poured out so that we could be cleansed. He sees Jesus' righteousness on us. So when he sees our lives and it kind of stinks and it's still broken and sinful, it would smell nice because it would smell of the aroma of Christ. Now, Jesus says that if we are in him, if we're connected to him by his grace and we have a a relationship with him in John 15, he says that he is, he's the true vine, the true vine of God, that if we are connected to him, we're we're like his branches, that, that in him, we can do all things that apart from him, we can do nothing. Picture this. It's always been God's plan to fill the earth with his glory. Did you get it? It's always been God's plan to use us, his image, to do it. And in Christ Jesus, he's reconnected us to that plan. And so now we're to bear fruit for him and the fruit of that relationship with him. And, and you know what? We're to reflect who he is. And he's gentle. And the world will be turned upside down by his love and his gentleness to us. 
William Adams. William Adams made the world news this week in probably a way he never wanted to make the world news. Uh, in many ways, William Adams is a man that, that society would hold up and, and, and respect, rightfully so, as a judge in Texas. But William Adams became famous this week because something hit YouTube and something hit the internet, and it was William Adams beating his daughter when she was 16. Uh, several years have, have uh, elapsed since then. Uh, the daughter who, who did something on the internet that he was upset about uh, decided to, uh, to take out the big belt and to beat his daughter. Uh, and she subsequently happened to film it in the world's as an outcry saying, how does a dad treat his daughter that way? How does one with authority, how does one like a judge who's going to judge others treat his own? so cruelly. Now, this is a tough one for, for the church, really, because, you know, you've got to kind of step through this one a little bit, because Scripture does say that God calls us to discipline our children. Scripture does say that if we spare the rod, we spoil the child. But Christ, uh, God's Word does say that we're clearly to do all things in love, that we should never discipline in anger, that we're to be gentle in all circumstances. I think anything from gentle. Again, let me just say that uh, I do believe it's important for us to discipline our children. But I got to tell you, I, I couldn't even watch that video. I couldn't watch one who has authority, one who has the power, and to abuse that with one owns child. Let me tell you about the judge of the world. Let me tell you about the king of kings. Let me tell you about the one who has ultimate authority. Do you know how he deals with us? Oh, he has every reason to take out his belt. He has every reason to be angry. He's holy, you know. And, and we have lived a life in front of him that is anything but perfect. He has the right, being God and being holy and being judge and, and being righteous, to whip out the belt and say, lashes on you. But you know about this Jesus? This is the one who says, lashes on me. Father, Take your belt out and whip me. Whip me for their sins. Whip me for their foibles. Whip me so that we can give them love, gentleness, mercy, and response. Isn't that a great Savior? That is who we have in Jesus you see, it is gentleness. You want to follow along in your, your bulletin and, and use this with your community group. Uh, gentleness, we're going to look at. Amazingly, gentleness is actually the power of God. I mean, how do you think gentleness and power go together? Well, gentleness is the power of God to bring peace into the world's chaos. I, I really want you to get this. I want you to lean into this and realize that gentleness, the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness, is what God wants to use as the power of God through the gospel to bring peace to the world's chaos. What will, bring, what will be the power that brings peace into our world? What will be that power? I think amazing thing about going to Israel, the amazing thing about being in Jerusalem, you see man's plan for peace. You see ruins on top of ruins, on top of ruins, on top of ruins, trying to secure peace for the world. And they usually do it through a stick. They usually do it through a belt. They usually do it with the biggest and the strongest are trying to bring peace. 
But God says that his peace is going to come some other means, and that's through Jesus. What will bring the world's peace? Maybe the question for you right now is, what will bring your soul's peace? What will bring peace into your household? What will bring peace into your life? Well, the only peace that could ever be really bring peace to the world and to our lives is the same peace. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news that, that God's own son has come and in his own body that, that he would absorb God's wrath, that he, he, would, he would tear down all that separates us from a holy God. That's in Jesus, in Jesus alone, Christ is our peace. He's our peace with God. Listen, Christ is our peace with one another. The reason we pass the peace is to tangibly remind one another he's our only hope for peace. And how does he secure it? How does he administer it? Through gentleness. Through the Holy Spirit of gentleness. All right, here's what I want you to do. I'm gonna give you an illustration. You're gonna be a little frustrated with the illustration because you're gonna be singing this jingle all day and you're gonna be a little bit mad with me, but this is the best I'm gonna do. You gotta lean in and get this, all right? I'm going to tell you that the fruit of the Spirit gentleness is like Alka-Seltzer. It's like Alka-Seltzer. Alka-Seltzer to the world. You know the uh, Alka-Seltzer jingle? Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. No one joined me. You made me sing that all by myself. I cannot believe you. But you got it, I hope. I hope you just get it. You won't even get it out of your brain. What about Alka-Seltzer? You see, Alka-Seltzer, they, they, they advertised. I went back and I looked at those early jingles and I went back and I thought about that. He says, you know, if you have an upset stomach, if you have a, if you have a, a hurting head, if what inside you that's, that's, that's not right, that's misaligned, that's, that's out of accord, Alka-Seltzer should be what you have that will bring calming, soothing, kind of bring you back into health. You see, gentleness, is the fruit of the Spirit that God uses with the power of the gospel to soothe the world, to calm the world. Not only that, it's, it's, it's this gentleness, this Alka-Seltzer, this gentleness of Christ that draws us into a relationship with him, that gives us life and life abundantly. Gentleness. Is our world filled with antacid? I mean, is it filled with acid that needs antacid, that needs an Alka-Seltzer? Is our world filled with turmoil? It sure is. And the one who has the biggest belt and the one who has the reason to, to, to not be gentle says, love the world through gentleness. So as you're picturing the spirit of gentleness, I want you to picture Alka-Seltzer, all right? Um, first of all, we gotta see how does God do this? How does God change the world and change the world's chaos through his gentleness? And the answer, of course, is all wrapped up in the gentle giant nature of Jesus. This gentle giant nature of Jesus. Look again with me to Matthew 11, verse 27. Because it's an amazing passage what Jesus claims here and what Jesus says. He says this, all things, all things have been handed over to me by my father. Unbelievable. What in the world is Jesus saying that in his hands are all things that God Almighty, God the Father gave to him? Well, really what this is talking about is what we would call maybe the covenant of redemption. That before time began, for some reason only known to God, that he set an amazing love on you and me. Somehow before time began and God knowing full well that we would rebel against him, that we would live our own lives, that God's going to love us anyway. And that God would send forth his son to come and to rescue us. 
And so before time began, God knew your name. God knew your rebellion. God knew your situation. And he says, I have a plan, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that Jesus is going to come and Jesus is going to become one of them so that we could become one of him and part of his family, that he would become uh, our sin so we could become his righteousness. It's an amazing plan. And the only way that we can ever have access to the Father is through a mediator, through the perfect, obedient Son, Jesus. And so the Father has now placed everything in his hands. The world is going to fail or succeed on the ministry of Jesus. God's plan to fill the earth with his glory, God's plan to rescue sinners like you and me, that whole plan rests solely in Jesus's hands. Talk about authority. Talk about power. That is what Jesus was handed. You see, here's what it really means, is that peace, is only found in his nail-pierced hands. Reconciliation could only be found in his broken body. The new covenant of peace that Scripture tells us can only be seen and felt and experienced in his spilt blood. Rest. Rest for our weary souls. Rest for our sin-soaked lives. Rest could only be found in the person of Jesus, the one with ultimate authority, the one with ultimate power. He is the one who so gently says to us, come to me, come to me. Isn't it amazing how gently Jesus calls sinners like us? He says, come to me. Here's here's your only condition. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to be religious. Here's your only condition. Be weary, be burdened. What is he saying there? He's saying, know that your own righteousness is not good enough in God's eyes. Know that you can never be religious enough. Know that this law is such a wearisome thing that you're just crying out, save me. Isn't it amazing that the only requirement is is to know that we don't have what it takes, that we're broken, and to cry out, come to me and he will give us rest. As a matter of fact, it says that he is Restful. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus is basically, the description is rest. Are you here, burdened, heavy laden? Do you hear Jesus calling? You're not going to find rest anywhere else. And amazingly, the one who has all authority in his hands, so tenderly, lovingly, bends down to our ear and whispers, just come. Then he says something very kind of interesting. He says, take my yoke. Now, take my yoke. I mean, yoke, you would would think of like being placed on 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 an animal that's going to have to uh, pull a a plow for a field. The yoke is kind of one of of, of maybe slavery. Uh, And so he says, if you're burdened and you're weary, take my yoke. I mean, doesn't he want to say, well, take off my yoke or take off a yoke? Well, Jesus' yoke is amazing. It says, he says, my yoke is easy. It's gentle. The word easy here is, is grace. It's, it's my, coming to me is so gracious that when you put this yoke upon you, this union with Christ, it's like a fleece lining of grace. You can't even feel it's on there. It's not a burden at all. Why? Because all the requirements the Father has, he's done for us. 
Even the desire we have, he gives to us. His grace, his faith. Come to me. Take on my yoke. Yes, there has to be perfection for us to stand in front of the Father's eyes. But I've given it to you. My yoke, it's easy. It's filled with grace. My burden, it's light. There will be a burden following Jesus. But we know that in that burden of following Jesus, there's fellowship with him. There's walking with Jesus in its light. It's lined perfectly with grace. He says this, and he says, learn from me. Be my disciple. This word learn is like being a disciple. Learn from me. It's basically saying, okay, you're weary, come to me. Take, be united to me. Take on my yoke. Believe in me. Uh, embrace me as Lord and Savior. And now learn from me. Now, now see who I am and, and how I'm to live. So the world can see me through you. And how does he say? How do you learn from him? Be gentle and lowly of heart. You see, I really believe, my brothers and sisters, that the key here is to realize that the one who has all authority placed in his heart, uh, in his hands, has this amazing heart that is lowly, lowly in heart. The lowly in heart is the gentle heart. The lowly in heart is the meek heart. The lowly in heart is not prideful. It's not harsh. How is your heart? Is it lowly? Is it prideful? Again, I think we have to realize that, that in Christ, we, we have all things, but apart from him, we can do nothing. Do we realize that apart from Jesus, we have nothing? Do we realize that apart from Jesus, we're just, we're just filthy rags? Or do we realize that apart from Jesus, we're utterly lost? All we have is by his grace. Our position, our standing, our gifts, it's all by his grace. If anybody should be lowly hearts, it should be Christians. Because we know the reality. We deserve the belt, but we got the love. We deserve the wrath, but we got adoption. If anybody should be lowly in hearts, it should be us. Because we reflect his heart, his lowly heart that lifts us up. Our attitudes at Philippians 2, uh, 3 through 5 says that we should do nothing. Listen, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Nothing, not a thing. But in humility, we should consider others better than ourselves. That each of us should have the attitude of Christ Jesus. What was the attitude of Christ Jesus? He being in the very nature God and having all authority in his hands did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. But he, he emptied himself. He became nothing. He became a servant. He was obedient even to death. You know, I just think that uh, uh, gentleness is not always something that we even value. Have you ever prayed for it? Have you ever thought that a harsh, prideful heart is just sinful? Or let's say it this way. The lack of gentleness for a Christian is sin. But there's more than that because this, this gentleness is what God wants to use to woo the world. He wants to use our gentleness. Why? Well, there's two things. There's the active, um, there's the, uh, the active power of Christ-like gentleness and there's also the passive power of Christ-like meekness. Let me just say this, that if you can think of gentleness actively as how we treat others, meekness is more passive 
how we respond to others. So God is calling us to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit gentleness in a way that actively engages others in gentleness. How do we do that? Listen, my brothers and sisters. It's realizing the world has nothing it can offer our souls to give us peace and life and meaning. We could be gentle with others when we realize we have received all we need from Christ Jesus. And now we engage in the world in a way that shows them the aroma of Christ. Meekness. What does it mean to turn the other cheek? What does it mean to go the other mile? What does it mean to absorb the wrath of the world? You know the world's angry at Christ, right? I mean, Psalm 2 tells us the world is going to be angry with God and angry with his righteousness. And they're going to be angry with us. But we have to know, listen, we just have to know that the world can do nothing to us. They can never touch us apart from God's hand. And the world can take nothing from us that God has already given to us in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Do you know that your love of God is secure in Christ Jesus? Do you know that your standing is secure? Do you know that no one will take your place in the family? Never. Never. And now whatever the world does, whatever the world chooses to do to us, we're his. We're loved. And God somehow uses the reality of the world railing against us that's really railing against him to see the gospel, to see meekness, to see gentleness, to see Jesus. That's the power of Christ-like gentleness. That's the power of Christ-like meekness. See, God's gentleness is truly the pathway to Christ. It always is to salvation. He says, come to me. His invitation is gentle. He's got a gentle and lowly heart and he continues to bid sinners to come. He still is bidding sinners to come. He wants that world out there to come to him and find life and life abundantly. He wants to use you and me to do it. And he wants to use you and me to do it in a way that we just are gentle and meek. Stand up for the truth, but stand up clearly for Christ. How is it with you? For some of you, um, the, it's just the, the, uh, the craziness of life is just overwhelming. Maybe the plop, plop, fizz, fizz of the message that you need, the antacid, uh, the Alka-Seltzer you need is just to be reminded if you're heavy burden right now, if you're weary, will you come to Jesus? That's the only way you'll find peace. That's the only way you'll find life. Only way. Are you really burdened right now? Maybe come to him again for the first time. How about for some of you? Some of you, do you, you have a prideful heart? Is your heart not lowly? Are you harsh? Are you critical? I mean, maybe your life could be filmed and shown on YouTube and be a pretty much embarrassment. Let me ask you, turn deeply to Jesus. Be reminded of this great news we have in him. Be filled with his Holy Spirit. Let gentleness and meekness wash over you. Repent. If you're critical and harsh, your heart is hard. Repent. Let your heart be broken before God and say, God, make my heart more like Jesus. But for all of us as a church, and I tell you, the church is going through it right now. We need to be a church that clearly speaks truth, but does it in love. We need to be a church that's known, 
man, they're committed to Jesus. They stand for truth. But man, do they love. Do they lead with gentleness and grace? And the world loves to show the church not being gentle. Loves to show those churches just north of here, pretty big university, burning different things, being anything for gentle, all kinds of angry. And to me, the gospel that I read, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the one to be led and lived with love. But they should see us and see Jesus. Well, you want to talk about a gentle giant. The gentle giant that I know and love, the biggest gentle giant maybe is Saul Cruz. Saul Cruz has had an amazing ministry to so many, leading again over and over and over again with grace and gentleness. I've asked him to come and to share the story that changed his life of another giant in his life that uh, just showed great grace to him. So, Saul, it's always great to have you, amigo. Como estas? Muy bien. And, uh, and please come share. Good morning. So good to be with you again. Uh, John Stott was one of the most important uh, theologians um, of the last century. Uh, to me, he was the greatest. He died at 90. He died only a couple of months ago. When he died, uh, his secretary of 52 years, his assistant of his last assistant um, of the last three years of his active ministry was with him and my daughter, our daughter, Adi, holding his hand. A week before he died, he managed to call home. He couldn't speak. He was, he couldn't see. He was really, really bad. But he managed to tell to my wife and myself in a very little tiny voice, goodbye. It was so moving. After his call, we couldn't stop crying. We love him so much. John Stott uh, came to visit us when he was uh, nearly 80 for the last time. He wanted to see Armonia. He wanted to see the ministry. And he loved to watch birds as well. So uh, we had arranged a bird-watching trip to the south of Mexico, and we went to the swamps. And it was fabulous. It was one of the most extraordinary trips I have ever taken. But one of those days, he said to me, today we're not watching birds. Have something more important to do. He sat down in front of me, pulled out a tape recorder, uh, a notebook, and he said, now tell me your vision. I want to hear the story of that vision you saw when you were a kid. You never told me the story. I was so moving. A few years later, in his uh, biography, in the two volumes of his biography, uh, in a very special part, a note about our first encounter appeared. It was extraordinary because I was only 14 when I met him, and he was already uh, a, an amazing uh, and important man in, uh, in all the world. And in the story, however, not everything is told. He only says that I was there listening to him and that I fall asleep in the second part of his talk. <laughs> Why? Why did that happen that way? Well, he reminded me of an amazing, amazing story. You know, I became a Christian when I was 13, 
only. I was in the middle of a crisis. I didn't know what to think. My father had left home. And somehow, an uncle of mine had managed to put in my hands a couple of books, and one of them was Basic Christianity from John Stott. And through the reading of that book, I have understood, because I read it several times, that I was needing God. I was needing Jesus in my life. I was needing to be healed from my sorrow. And, uh, and I had there to, to read and to pray with the, with the prayer that comes in the last pages where it says, uh, Lord, if you exist, and I'm not sure that you exist, and if you are listening to me and I'm not sure that you're listening to me, come to me, make yourself real in my heart. And he did. So the next day, second day, I am a Christian. I am so excited. I want to tell everybody that I am a Christian. But first, I had to have a shower. So I went to my mother's uh, bathroom. And I like her bathroom because she had this amazing mirror. And I li- love to watch my muscles in the mirror. And, uh, and so I am here at the mirror. And, 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 and suddenly I see something. I don't know if it was a vision or what. But I saw some really amazing in this mirror. And I was all moved and, and at the same time shocked. And I didn't know what to think. I went to my mom. My mom said, I don't know anything about vision, so get out of here. And, uh, and, and, and I ran to the pastor to, to, that uh, was very close to my house. I used to live there. He was not there. I took my bike, went to the church and arrived and told him, uh, Pastor, I am a Christian since yesterday. Great. And I had a vision today. He says, Christians don't have visions. So, what? No, 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 no. But I had a vision. Let me tell you what I saw. Please forget that. Now that you're a Christian, forget about visions. Okay. And he gave me a book. How to become a member of the church. I'd be a good member of the church. Yeah. All about um, giving and going to Sundays to church and all that. Anyway, I was not satisfied. I wrote down what I had so, uh, have seen and, uh, and then sent it. In a letter to John Stott. But it was all in Spanish. <laughs> to words and things. I sent uh, the letter to Argentina. Because the book had been translated in Argentina. And somehow. He never answered. However. Eight months later. I get a letter. In very broken Spanish. It was written by Francis. His secretary. He's saying, she's saying basically. Uncle John is very sorry. But he doesn't speak Spanish. And he's, uh, but he's going to be in Mexico next year. And he is going to, and he will be very happy to answer your questions. So I got very excited and started to plan to go to Mexico City, a place maybe 450 miles away from my hometown. And I didn't have any money. I was only 14. And of course, I asked permission to my mother, said, ask your father. I went to my father. Father said, ask ask your mother. My mother asked your father. Well, parents never do like that, but mine did. And finally, my mom, fed up with my asking, she said, do what you want. And I interpreted that as a yes. So I left home. (laughs) And um, I took, I stole some food from my mother's kitchen. And, uh, and left. I hitchhiked all the way. I go to Mexico City. It was a very dangerous city. And I realized it the first night I was there. And I spent the night in a bus station. 
It was very scary. Next day, I'm the first one at this place at where he's going to speak. And, and I'm waiting. They open the place. I go. I sit down. And I'm just waiting for him to arrive. And he arrives. And I'm very excited. I, I hadn't seen a picture of him. But I knew who he was. He was the taller one. He was very handsome. Very special. And surrounded by suits. And, um, and these people wouldn't let me come next to him. I tried. But he said, no, no, kid. Go, go to your mom. Okay, seek, seek another place. But uh, this is for adults. They wouldn't let me come next to him. In the intermission, in between the two lectures he gave, uh, I managed to send my hand through and greeted him. I mean, he was very tall, and he looked like a giant to me, and he smiled back to me. But that was all. The other problem I was experiencing is that I couldn't understand what he was talking about. Later on, years later, I found the outline of that lecture inside of an old Bible. He was speaking of returning to freedom and dignity. He was, trying to, uh, he was answering to a book written by B.F. Skinner on, uh, on freedom and dignity. And it was a very, very dense thing. At 14, I didn't have any idea of this language. And also, I was tired and hungry. So I slept in the second part of his uh, time there. And I'm sure he saw me because that appears in his book. Nevertheless, when I, in the second part of his talk, I was feeling very tired and very hungry. And, and thinking that, mm, really, I, I was so stupid in thinking that a man with, of such importance would take his time to listen to my questions. And would, would really uh, bring a translator uh, so that I could talk to him. So when the question started, I just went out of church, sat down in a bench next to it, and started to ponder if I would eat my last apple. That was all, the, the only food I had left. And I was thinking, should I eat it now or later? Because I'm going to be hungrier later. And as I was doing that and looking at my shoes, then I saw his shoes. And big tennis shoes next to it. This was him and his interpreter, an American, who was interpreting for him. And through him, he asks me, uh, are you the kid who was inside? He said, yes. Yes. Where, where do you come from? And he tried to talk to me, but it was impossible because more people came uh, and surrounded him and started to talk to him. And after a little while, he, he comes back to me and says, uh, uh, and he invites me for dinner. And I go. And I am thinking, now I'm going to sit next to him and I'm going to tell him all about my vision. And, uh, and, and this, uh, well, what happened is that they sat me in the farthest most place uh, from him. You see, I was a kid. So he was here in the place of honor and a very important people surrounding him. And I was over there just looking at the distance thinking, oh, he's never going to really have time for me. So after I ate fearing that I had to go to the bus station to spend the night, and I didn't have money, I, I, was, uh, I started to leave. And the missioner's wife intercepts me and says, uh, do you have a place to stay tonight? Well, sort of. And uh, I said, well, let me reward the question. Would you ma your mother approve the place where you're going to spend the night tonight? No, mom. 
okay, you're staying in my house, but do you mind sharing the room with Uncle John? Wow. I didn't mind. And I never thought if he would mind. But actually, I slept in the same room. I was expecting to talk to him, but language. See, so he came, smiled to me, read a passage, uh, uh, said a short prayer, and then he was flat and sleeping. And I had a burden. It was my shoes. You see, I had very, very uh, old, smelly, run-down shoes, run-down boots, miners' boots. My, fa- my parents had terrible problems, so they would never buy me shoes. And, and I was very embarrassed of my shoes. And also, I hadn't had a shower in two days. I was pretty smelly, especially my shoes. And uh, I managed to, to, to clean, to wash my socks in the bathroom. But I was thinking, next morning, I'm going to go out of this apartment and clean my shoes because they look very bad. I'm going to use some toilet paper or whatever. And I tuck my shoes under the bed. I was always embarrassed there. I would tuck my shoes under a seat, whatever I had a chance, because I was embarrassed of my shoes. But next morning, when I wake up and look for my shoes, they're gone. Where are my shoes? And I was, I mean, uh, lifting the bed and my shoes. And this was terrible. And then as I come out of the room, they're there, shining. Somebody had shined my shoes. And it was like ice cold water falling on me, thinking, oh boy, what did I do? Uh, I, I offended the, the family because they, their carpets were white. And I thought that the lady of the house sent the maid to clean my shoes so that I wouldn't ruin her, her carpet. And I went to, to see the maid and ask her, did you shine my shoes? No way, she said. And then I went to the lady and asked her, uh, did do you know who shined my shoes? And she said, I don't, but I have an idea. Come. And she takes me to the living room, and he is there. John Stott is reading his Bible. And, and I sit in the little uh, table, wooden table at the center, and looking at him, and she sits next to him, and I ask him, did you shine my shoes? And he says, rubbish. That was an expression he had uh, he used when he didn't want to answer a question. And, and I said, no, seriously, Uncle John, did you shine my shoes? You didn't have to shine my shoes. And, and he said, please, yes, I did. Please allow me to do this little service to you while we are together. I was moving, so moving, so shocking. He was treating me, communicating to me what dignity was in a way I had never, never seen before. No words, acts, acts of love, acts of concern. That afternoon, I mean, that day I didn't go to his lectures. I didn't understand what was happening there. But he came back with the family. We ate, and he took me out to eat ice cream. We were eating ice cream. And just looking at each other and smiling. Next day, they sent me home in a proper bus. Didn't have to hitchhike. I had new shoes with me, a new jacket, and a few books. 20 years later, I found him in, in Singapore. I mean, this relationship lasted 
for all our lives, but for 10 years, I didn't write to him. I was embarrassed. I didn't know how to approach him. And then I found him in Singapore, at the University of Singapore, and he's coming in my direction, and suddenly I see him, and I say, Uncle John, and he says to me, my beloved son, Saul, how are you? And I said, you remember my name perfectly, because Saul is a name that very few people say, say correctly. You see, it sounds unusual. But he said, how wouldn't I if I pray for you every day? I want to share with you this special story. God bless you. A gentle giant, a theologian who would shine shoes and who would remember a little boy's name just reflects a Savior who washes feet and knows your name and has a relationship with you. He wants to feed us today. He wants to remind us of his gentleness and his grace that is poured out upon us. It's kind of like that Alka-Seltzer to our soul because life is still tumultuous, is it not? Um, They say that last night was the game of the century. It went into overtime. Um, I'm not sure this is the worship service of the century. It's pretty close, maybe. We're going to go into overtime a little bit. But we got the Lord's Supper. It's a tangible expression of His love and grace, of a Savior who washes our feet and who sheds His blood and whose body is broken so that we could come and know and love and be healed by Him. So as you prepare your hearts, I'm going to ask the elders to come and um, prepare the table. Let's be mindful of this amazing God who all authority was placed in his hands and they became pierced so that we could have life. Oh, what a gentle Savior. Prepare your hearts to come and partake of him.